Well, thank you, Mr. Lee, for this invitation to come back to Sermon Audio. Um, just in light of his emphasis there, I, I do want to thank you. Um, last month when I was um, leading the devotional from Luke 10, I will say I went away um, very blessed um, after the prayer time. Just It was really challenging um, to hear all of you praying for me and for my peers here at Bob Jones. Um, challenging that I wouldn't just go through class after class um, through the mundane things of life, but that I would live intentionally with the purpose of what I'm getting here um, is preparing me for a lifetime of service uh, wherever the Lord uh, would take me. So I just want to thank you uh, for your prayers for me and for my peers here at Bob Jones, and thank you again for the opportunity to be here today. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Romans chapter 12, the book of Romans in chapter 12. In just a minute, we'll be looking at verses 1 and 2. I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, have heard of the phrase, all that glitters is not gold. Historians have labeled the Klondike River Gold Rush in the Yukon Territory of Canada in the 1890s as the last great gold rush. And when news spread that gold had been discovered, um, there were an estimated 100,000 people that started out for this region in pursuit of gold. And the mayor of Seattle actually quit his position as mayor to join these fortune seekers. Uh, but many of these people, and I keep in mind there's 100,000 people in pursuit of this gold, many of these people didn't know what it would be like to, to just get to this area, to, to cross the rugged mountains, the frozen fields, and the mostly lawless remote villages. And in the end, only 30 to 40,000 made it there alive. And for those that did make it there alive, life in the Klondike region brought only frustration and financial ruin. One historian wrote, only 4,000 found any gold at all. Now keep in mind, 100,000 people started out for this area in pursuit of gold. And he says only 4,000 found any gold at all. And then he continues, he says, of the 4,000, a few hundred found gold in quantities large enough to call themselves rich. And out of these fortunate men, only the merest handful managed to keep their wealth. Now, you may be here today and you're like, okay, Jonathan, why are you telling me this history story of a gold rush? Well, it's not just gold that people have sought for in their Christian life to make them feel rich and happy. Sometimes uh, many Christian young people will say that they've prayed about a certain relationship. And they're convinced it is the will of God. And even though multiple other concerned people caution them, they pursue it only to find out all that glitters is not gold. And maybe it's not just a relationship. Maybe it's, oh, if I can just get this possession, this is going to make my life feel rich and happy. Or if I can get this job or this promotion or, or whatever it may be, a new hobby, this is going to make my life feel satisfied. This is going to be like gold to me. This is going to make me feel rich and happy. And far too many get down this path and realize that what they were pursuing turned out to be fool's gold. But the text we have turned to today in Romans chapter 12, it tells us that we can know for sure what the will of God is for our life. Look with me at the last phrase of verse 2. The last phrase of verse 2 says, That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The word translated prove means to learn 
the genuineness of something by examination and testing. So we can prove, we can test, we can discern what the will of God is for our life. And look with me at the descriptions of the will of God. The descriptions, good, acceptable, and perfect. The word good has the idea of something that is noble and beautiful. The word acceptable has the idea of something that, that is really pleasurable. And the last description, um, the last description, verse 1, acceptable unto God. This has, uh, per, sorry, the description perfect is something that is complete and mature, not something that's partial or temporary. So you can see even in the descriptions of the will of God that if, if we're going to go back to our illustration of gold, this is real gold. This isn't fool's gold. This isn't something that you pursue it and, it and it turns out to not satisfy. No, God's will, it's good. It's acceptable and perfect. There is nothing better for your life than the will of God. So when we back up to the start of verse 1 and we get to this last phrase in verse 2, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul gives us four summary steps in proving the will of God for our life. Four summary steps in proving the will of God for your life. At the start of verse 1, you can see that the first step to living in the will of God for your life is salvation. When we read in verse 1, Paul says, I beseech you therefore. And that word therefore ties us back into Romans chapters 1 through 11 where the theme has been the gospel. And the gospel that Paul says in chapter 1 verse 16 is the power of God to salvation. And when Paul continues on in verse 1, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren. Paul is referring to brethren of like precious faith. He is assuming that, that they have responded in faith to this gospel message. And then continuing on in verse 1, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Paul appeals based on the mercies of God. Again, this is an indication that, that he regards these people as those that have heard the gospel message, that the righteous life and the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ can save from sin, and that they have embraced this message with saving faith. And if, if this is a first step to living in the will of God for your life, if salvation is the first step to living in the will of God for your life, then one application we can make is that you will never be able to experience God's very best in your life until you first come to grips with your sinful condition and turn to Christ as your one and only Savior. This is God's will. God, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But you may be here today, and it wouldn't be hard for you to think of someone that you have good reason to hope is saved, but you wouldn't say they're living in the will of God either. They're not experiencing God's very best. Well, there is another step that must be taken, and that is the step of surrender. So we have salvation, and now we have surrender. On the basis of the mercies of God, now that we've been saved, we are exhorted in verse 1 to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. This surrender is very practical. 
And the, the word present here in verse 1 is from the same word in Romans 6 that is translated yield. Back in Romans 6, we are told to yield our instruments, and here we are told to present our bodies. And it's as practical as yielding our hands, our eyes, our feet, all that we are to the Lord for his service. And the additional descriptions of the surrender add to our understanding as well. The description, a living sacrifice, makes a contrast between animals that were offered as a one-time event. So it's saying you need to daily, ongoing, may, may it be an ongoing daily act of worship. You are presenting all that you are to the Lord. And the description holy refers to something that is purposefully set apart and consecrated. The description acceptable unto God is again just saying do this because it's pleasing to God. And the last description, reasonable service. I love, I love how um, this is the last phrase in this verse, um, talking about presenting your bodies. This is your reasonable service. It is only logical. It's reasonable when you realize the amount of love that Christ has displayed for you on the cross. It is only reasonable that you give all that you are to the Lord for his service. The course of his robes for mine. But by such love, my life is not my own. My praise, my all, shall be for Christ alone. It is only reasonable that we daily, that we have an ongoing act of surrender and service to the Lord. But again, it, it, it probably isn't hard for you to think of someone that you have good reason to hope is saved. And, and they're living um, with a great deal of surrender to the Lord, but but you wouldn't say, oh, they're, they're not living in the will of God either. There are two more steps, and, and both of these steps to living in the will of God, these last two, are given in verse 2. The third step to living in the will of God for your life is the step of separation. Read with me in verse 2, the first phrase. And be not conformed to this world. If I would expand on this, this label of separation it would mean battling conformity to this world. The world in verse 2 is represented as doing the action. The world is trying to pressure us into its mold, into adopting its values and priorities. And we're being told here not to, not to be passive. Don't just sit back and let it happen. I have two older brothers, and um, all of us grew up playing baseball. Uh, from a young age. And my oldest brother, Samuel, uh, he was a successful athlete, um, successful at multiple sports. Um, but unfortunately, Samuel was a horrible batter. He could not hit the ball. Now, my next brother, Daniel, he was kind of the exact opposite. My Daniel brother, he's, um, he's 6'2", a lot bigger guy. Now, he could really hit the ball. He was a good batter. But eventually, Daniel, my brother Daniel started getting hit um, by wild pitches thrown from the pitchers and eventually he got so scared about not wanting to get hit get hit by the pitches that he wouldn't stay in the batter's box long enough to swing he was he was so scared he wouldn't he wouldn't stay in the batter's box long enough to swing he wasn't going to get hit by the ball again but yet he wasn't going to hit the ball either and so I'm trying to illustrate here the difference between just sitting in the batter's box 
and getting hit by the ball versus being actively getting the ball out of there. And, and this illustrates um, this text very well. I've, I've heard my dad say many times that you don't have to pursue worldliness to be worldly. You don't have to choose to be a rebel to end up worldly. If we just sit back passively and let the world's music and movies and entertainment and advertisements flood over us and we do nothing to battle conformity and live separated, we're not going to be able to get to this last phrase in verse 2. We are not going to be able to prove the will of God. We are not going to be able to experience God's very best in our life. We must battle conformity to this world. We must live separated. But again, you may be listening here today and you can think of someone that you hope to be saved and for a time lived, lived with a great deal of surrender to the Lord and for a time lived with some relatively high standards of separation. But again, you would say they're not living in the will of God. There's a fourth and final step that must be taken in the, in the middle phrase of verse 2. And this is the step of saturation. The next part of verse 2 tells us, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Though it isn't stated here, the one thing in all the world our mind is to be saturated with is the word of God. The word of God in 1 Peter and Hebrews is the milk and the meat that we feed on to grow. The word of God in James is the mirror where we see our true sinful condition from God's perspective. Jesus prayed to the Father for us in John 17 and he said, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, what the Spirit of God uses to change me, to transform me from one degree of glory into another, what the Spirit of God uses is the glass, is, it's the word of God. And when our mind is saturated with Bible truth, we are told here in verse 2 that the result will be ongoing transformation. And, and this word transformation, it, it means to be changed into another form. It's Christian growth. It's being changed to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And what the Spirit of God uses to change me is the Word of God. And Sometimes Bible reading can seem so simple and so basic and, and we can start to neglect it as if there are more important priorities to give our attention to. But that's not the case here in this text. If we are going to prove God's will and experience God's very best, we must be saturated in the Word of God. The fact that God outlines these straightforward steps tells us that, that God wants us to know and live in his will. I know that many teenagers and college students my age, we can live with a lot of anxiety about future direction in life. We have a lot of big decisions ahead of us. Where am I going to go to school? Where am I going to study? Where am I going to work after school? Who am I going to marry? Where am I going to live? And I know many of you adults, you may be um, a pastor or a deacon, and there may be some big, difficult decisions that you have to make coming up in your church. Or you may be listening here today, you may be a parent or grandparent, and, 
uh, you have some big decisions in your family that you need to make that, that will affect multiple family members. How are you gonna arrive at, at making the right decision? How are you gonna know God's will? This, this text really is an encouragement because it shows us that there is a process by which we can prove the will of God. The issue is, am I living like I want to live in the will of God? Am I living, am I, first of all, am I saved? And then am I living surrendered? Am I daily presenting all that I am to the Lord for his service? Am I thirdly living separated? Am I battling conformity to this world? And then fourthly, am I living saturated in the word of God? Is my mind being renewed and transformed by the word of God? Taking these steps, we can arrive at God's very best in his will. But leaving one of these steps out, we could end up pursuing what turns out to be fool's gold.